The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 24, and I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 14. From verse 3 to verse 14 in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the, and the, end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. We return to a consideration of the message of this 24th chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. Judged by any standards whatsoever, a most important and a most vital message, and especially at this present time. The world will all agree, whatever our views of Christianity or of anything else, we must all agree that the world is in a strange and extraordinary condition at this present time. A time of change, a time of flux, a time of confusion, a time of uncertainty. There is no question at all but that you and I are living through one of the great turning points in history. We are living in one of those which I like to describe as climactic ages and epochs. There are such periods to be seen in the history of the world, times when everything, as it were, is thrown into the melting pot, and the old order which had persisted for so long seems to come to an end, and men and women are bewildered and are wondering as to what is going to happen. Now, it's very difficult for us to realize this, isn't it? We all are so immersed by the details of our lives and work and occupation that it's very difficult for us to stand back, as it were, and look upon the course of history as a whole and as a larger unit. We are so involved, I say, in the details, the small things of life, that it's so easy for us not to realize that this tremendous thing is happening round and about us and is happening to us. And as I began to say last uh, Sunday evening, 
The Christian people are asking is, now what is the meaning of all this? It's rather baffling. It's surprising. Nobody anticipated that this was the sort of thing that was going to happen in this 20th century. And people looking at the wars and at the preparation for yet more terrible wars are rightly asking the question, what's the cause of all this? What's to be the outcome? What's the end? Is there any security to be found anywhere in life? Is there any word that can give us some understanding, some explanation, and some hope? These are inevitably the questions that people are, an, are asking. And it is because of all that that I'm directing your attention to this great chapter. For here, the Lord Jesus Christ himself deals with this very situation, with this exact problem. And uh, therefore, it is for us to listen to him. I gave some reasons uh, last uh, Sunday evening why we should do so. It is because he is the speaker. Here you see in this chapter, he does two things. He makes an immediate prophecy as to what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple in particular. You remember, don't you? Jesus went out from the temple and departed. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, in the chapter, he does predict and prophesy the destruction of that temple that was there then and of the whole city of Jerusalem. But in addition to that, he goes on and deals with the whole course of history and the end of the world. The disciples asked him that question. Tell us, they said, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? Now he deals with that in this chapter. The two things are dealt with at one and the same time. And I say that the reason for listening to him is this. If we had no other reason, this would be enough. There he was speaking, let us say roughly A.D. 32 or 33, and talking about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And in A.D. 70, it literally, actually happened. Now, that's, that's history. That's fact. That's not my theory. It's not anybody else's theory. This is sheer fact. He prophesied it so many years before it happened, and then it did happen. Literally. Not one stone was left upon another of that mighty, magnificent pile of buildings known as the temple. I say, if you've no other reason to listen to him, pay due heed and attention to that. One who is capable of this should surely be listened to. It seemed so unreasonable then, so impossible. But it happened. Very well, if he's right there, why not here? Listen to him about the end of the world. And then we have seen that he tells us various things in general principles. He warns us that the things which we think are durable and unshakable are going to be destroyed. The kingdoms of this world and all their pomp and power are going to pass away. The things on which men think they can bank their everything will vanish and disappear. But he tells us also why that is happening, why that is going to happen. 
And there's only one reason for it. It is because of men's rebellion against God. It is because of men's defiance of God. It is because men's sin calls down the wrath of God. And that is what he prophesies. But at the same time, and thank God for this, he shows us the way to escape. If we repent and believe in him, we need never be involved in this terrible, horrible destruction that is going to come upon the world outside God and all the eternal consequences that will follow from that. That's his message. It's a surprising message. It's a startling message. But that is the message, and I say that the business of preaching is to call men and women to listen to it and to pay attention to it. But now I know very well that there are large numbers of people in the world tonight who not only don't listen to it, but won't listen to it. They quite openly say so, and they give their reason for not listening to it. Ah, they say, there you are, the Christian church, and you Christian preachers still go on preaching that same old gospel. But they say you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Why do you go on preaching a message like that that is such an obvious failure? Now, you're familiar with this argument, I'm sure. This is how they put it commonly. Now they say, here is this gospel of yours, for which you're claiming so much, and which you say was preached by one whom you say was the Son of God. Now then, they say, here are the facts. This gospel of yours has been preached now in this world for nearly 2,000 long years. There have been times in the history of the world in that interval of time when the church has been in a dominating position. She had power over men and women. She could coerce them and make them listen. Very well. Here is your gospel. It's been preached for 2,000 years and people have been listening to it and accepting your doctrines and your dogmas. But they say, look at the state of the world. Look at it with its wars. Look at it with its confusion. Look at it with the nations behaving as they're behaving at the present time and piling up these horrible armaments and bombs. They say the thing is insulting. Your gospel, they say, of all things, is utterly condemned as a failure. It's had a marvelous opportunity for nearly 2,000 years. And it's achieved nothing. The state of the world is the absolute proof, they say, that your gospel is all nonsense. And they refuse even to listen to it. They're going to turn somewhere else. They're going to turn to politics. Or they're going to turn to anything that can give us some hope of putting an end to our troubles and banishing war and bringing in a time of peace and of plenty and prosperity and happiness for all. The gospel, they say, has had this marvelous opportunity to improve and to reform the world and make it a better place. And it has disastrously and completely failed to do so. Now, I'm sure that we're all familiar with that case and with that particular argument. You see, it's based upon this idea. That the primary function and purpose of this New Testament gospel is to improve and is to reform the world. That that is its claim? that the, the Lord Jesus Christ preached it with that intent and sent out his 
disciples and apostles to do the same thing. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is a, is a gospel of doctrine, a message, therefore, of social improvement, social amelioration, righting wrongs, mitigating sufferings, getting rid of that which is harmful, building up a new society, introducing the kingdom of God, making the world a perfect place in which to live. Now that's their theory, that that is what the gospel claims to do, that that is what the gospel from the very beginning has promised to do, has offered to do, that that is the real message of Christianity. And therefore, and it seems quite logical, doesn't it, they say that the world's condition tonight is the thing that completely deflates the gospel and shows how completely useless and idle and valueless it is. It has failed to do, so the argument runs, the very things that it promised to do. Well, now then, I want to show you this evening how our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ dealt with that very case, that very argument, nearly 2,000 years ago. The complete answer to all that is here in this passage that we're looking at at this very moment. Now, I'm urgent about this, and I'm urgent about it for this reason. I cannot imagine anything more tragic than that any man or woman should go to his or her grave and go out into eternity, outside God and the blessings of the Christian salvation, simply because of this profound and tragic misunderstanding with respect to the very primary object of the gospel. But there are many such. You are all, as I say, certainly familiar with such people. They think it's beyond argument. Look at the world, they say. Your gospel has been tried. It has been found wanting. It cannot do it. It has failed to make the world the kind of place that we would like to see it as. Well, now then, let us listen to what our Lord has got to say about this very position. I'll put it to you in the number of propositions. Here's the first. The gospel has never said, has never claimed, has never set out to reform or to improve the world. Is the proposition clear? The gospel of Jesus Christ, I say, has never said that it was going to reform or to improve the world. Well, that's a strong statement, isn't it? But uh, I'll throw it out as a challenge. Can anybody present produce me any evidence to show that anywhere in the gospel there is such a promise? And the answer is, of course, that there isn't such a promise. Well, where does this idea come from? That the business of the gospel is to improve the world. Where does it come from? And the answer is, wherever it's come from, it most certainly has not come from the New Testament, because it just isn't here. Oh, but I can tell you where it's come from. And this is what makes this particular misunderstanding of the gospel that we're looking at tonight so pathetic. I'll tell you where it's come from. It's come from the philosophers. It's come from the scientists. 
It's come from the very people to whom people are turning at the present time as they turn away from the gospel and from the church. Oh, they say that old gospel, that's finished, outmoded, proved to be wrong, useless. Now then, we'll listen to the philosophers, we'll listen to the scientists. Here are men at dinner who are practical and are looking at facts as they are instead of dreaming dreams and promise making lavish promises which never come to pass. Practical, scientific attitude towards life is what we want. Well, now then, the fact is, of course, that this whole idea of uh, the world being reformed and improving and being better each generation than it was in the previous one has come from such gentlemen, your philosophers and scientists, and your politicians and various other people. They have certainly made that promise. It's a part of their case. You can't accept the theory, the hypothesis about evolution without believing that the world ought to be getting better and better. It's essentially the thing that is taught by evolution. That's not the Bible, that's uh, philosophic science. Not the Bible at all, but very definitely philosophy and science mixed up and jumbled up together and theories turned into facts and then the whole thing put forward. That teaches that. In other words, that outlook is something which tells us this. That all the world really needs is to be educated. It needs to be trained. You see a wild colt in the field full of energy and power, but he's rough and raw. Well, he's no use like that. Well, you must catch him this end. You must train him. You must put him into a stable, and then you gradually train him. You must lead him first, then you put a saddle on his back, and then you gingerly get onto that saddle, and so you gradually train him to carry you, and then he's afraid of motor cars. Well, you familiarize him. You educate him, and eventually you'll have a wonderful horse whom you can ride or put in a trap or anything that you may be anxious to do for your own pleasure. Education. Now they say, the whole of mankind is like that, the world is like that. The world is very much in the raw. It's got a good deal of the animal and the beast in it still. Well now, what, what is needed? What is needed in order to put the world right? Well, obviously, education, training. If you see two boys fighting, you say, now don't be foolish. One of you is going to get hurt, perhaps both of you. Don't be silly. If you see two grown-up men fighting, you say, what are you doing? If you see them getting drunk and their wives and children starving, you go and point out and look at the consequences of your action. It's wrong. It's a foolish thing to do. You mustn't do that. And so you work it up until you come to nations. And you say to nations, well, now, look here. Let's take a survey of history. Do you see the effects of wars always? They always lead to pestilences and to great suffering. There's always a terrible time in the wake of any kind of war, even the victors themselves suffer. And then you say to them, well, now, then there's the evidence. Well, what about it? Let's meet round the table and let's agree together not to be foolish. You see, what's needed is thought. It's People's minds need to be trained. Man instinctively hits the other man before he reasons. Well, you say, you don't do that. You don't start by hitting. You start by having a quiet, friendly discussion. You talk about these things and point out how unreasonable it is. That's education as applied to the whole situation of mankind. So the argument has been that by means of education and reform and the removal, I say, of wrongs and hindrances 
and the giving of better conditions and the gradual uplifting of the whole of society, we can get rid of our problems and of our difficulties. And so, the more of this kind of thing that we get, the more of this education, the better will the world become. And obviously, it will go on getting better and better as this education seeps into the minds of men and women. Now, they say, you've got to be, of course, exact and scientific in your proposals. You can't suddenly put it and people will jump at it at once. No, no, these things take a long time. Mankind is rather stupid. It's slow of hearing. But if you go on ramming it in, go on repeating it, they'll gradually get to understand it. So you must be patient and give it a little time. But as the years pass and the decades pass especially, then you will find that there will be a constant rise in the level and eventually you'll have the perfect society and the perfect world. War will be banished once and forever. Men will turn their swords into plowshares. They'll even get rid of their local national parliaments. You'll have the parliament of men, the federation of the world. That's it, isn't it? Yes, but you see, I haven't been preaching the gospel for the last five minutes or so. I've been putting the politicians and the philosophers and your Tennysons and your Victorian poets into my own language. It is they who've taught this. It is not the gospel. Oh, but I want to be fair. The times in which we are living are so urgent and so desperate that even at the risk of being misunderstood, I want to put something very plainly before you. The fault lies not only with the politicians and the philosophers and the poets. Alas, there are many preachers who've got to be put into the same category. You see, towards the end of the last century, there were many men preaching in Christian pulpits who preached this very philosophy of improvement. And, of course, they became tremendously interested in politics. You had your so-called preacher politicians. And I blame them more than anybody for the state of the church and the state of the world today. They mixed up this atheistical, evolutionary theory with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they introduced that element in it, and they taught the people that the gospel was just a form of teaching which was meant to reform society and to improve the condition of the whole world. And it is because so many of them did that, that so many people tonight, as I'm trying to say, won't even listen to the gospel. They've always held that view, that that is what the gospel promised, that is what it set out to do. This is the supreme teaching. Therefore, this of, of all teachings is the one that's going to banish the problems and introduce a kind of millennium. But they say it hasn't come, and therefore they're no longer interested in the gospel. Well, I say the first answer to that tragic misunderstanding of the gospel is that it is nothing but a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. That the gospel itself has never said that, and that that is to import into the gospel and to impose upon it a theory which belongs altogether to another and to an alien realm. Well, that's my first proposition, but I don't stop there. 
Not only then is it true to say in the first place that the gospel of Jesus Christ has never promised that. In the second place, I put it to you that the gospel specifically, and not merely implicitly, but explicitly, says the exact opposite. Now then, that's the peculiar message of these verses that we're looking at tonight. I beg of you, go home and read this 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Read the whole of it. Read the same thing in the 21st chapter of Luke's Gospel. Read the same thing in the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Read the same thing in the 2nd epistle of Peter, chapter 3. Read the book of Revelations. It's everywhere. What is the message then? Well, I say it is the exact opposite of what men and women think it is. Does the gospel promise to make the world better and better? No. It tells us that the world more or less remains a constant. And that indeed at times it even gets worse and worse. Listen to our Lord. Here are these disciples saying to him, Master, they said, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, the end of the age? And he proceeds to answer them. And what does he foretell? Does he foretell a period of increasing prosperity and understanding and truth and men and women being delivered from all that had made life so miserable before he came and a wonderful world which is like a paradise? Well, I have read the answer to you, haven't I? He prophesies and predicts the exact opposite. He prophesies trouble, though his gospel is going to be preached. He says there will be trouble. He says there will be wars and rumors of wars. But I thought the business of the gospel, says somebody, was to do away with war. No, says Christ. Though my gospel is going to be preached, there will be wars and rumors of wars and still more preparation for wars. He's prophesied it. Pestilences, earthquakes. Yes, and in the midst of all these things, the element of deceitfulness. Be not deceived, he says. Ah, our Lord, looking to the future, says, you know, men will be deceiving one another. There will be false hopes. People will arise who will say, listen to me. I'm the Christ. I'm the one who's got salvation. Follow me. Adopt my theory. Listen to me. And many will run after them. They'll listen to these false prophets. These deceivers. Oh, his view of history looking forward as he did then nearly 2,000 years ago, is with the world in trouble. Oh, but says somebody, I wish, if I'd known that you were going to preach this sort of thing, I wouldn't have come at all. I came for a little bit of hope. My dear friend, what you need is truth. And you only get it in this gospel. Our Lord has told us that the world is going to be exactly as we know it tonight. Trouble, trials, tribulations, 
Wars, rumours of wars, deceit amongst men, false hopes, false theories, and people rushing after them and clutching at them, believing them, only to be shown later that they've been fools and dupes, and that they lack discrimination and understanding that they were governed by their desires rather than by their knowledge and by an understanding of truth. And in addition to all this, he says, a hatred of Christianity, a hatred of him, a hatred of his followers, hatred of his preachers, hatred of his people. They'll kill you, he says. Why, what have they done? They've done nothing at all. They're simply preachers of the gospel. They're offering men and women eternal and everlasting salvation, but the world hates them. And it's killed many of them, and so it has, hasn't it? And it's still doing so this evening. Now, that is the kind of picture that our Lord puts and the graphic way in which he does it is most astounding. It's almost a perfect description, isn't it, of the modern world. He said, ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. But there are some foolish people who are troubled. They feel that because there are wars and rumors of wars, that Christianity is failing. No, no, it's not failing. It's never said it's going to put an end to wars and put an end to rumors of wars. He says, see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these, he says, are the beginning of sorrows. Worse things are to come. This is the gospel. Not that the world's going to get better and better, but that as the end of the age approaches, it's going to get worse. All this that has been true of mankind and its long history is going to be accentuated. It's going to become more violent, more devilish, more hellish. These are but the beginning of sorrow. That is his teaching. That is his prophecy. That is what he, who is the author of the gospel, says is going to be the course of history in the world in which his gospel is going to be preached. Far from improving, reforming, making the world better and better and better, until by when you come to the 20th century, there'll be no problems left at all. That is what he predicts. That is what he says is going to be the condition. Now, my dear friend, can't you see the obvious implication? Aren't you already drawing the inevitable deduction? It is this. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone that throughout the centuries has made this prediction and prophecy about the state of the world. Nothing else has done so. The optimism with respect to the future has always been in men who have not believed the gospel. You can read their books, their utopias, their planning, and all that. They've always been present in every generation. It's men who's been optimistic about the future of society and of the world. The gospel never has. And therefore, don't you see, you should draw this deduction. The state of the world this evening Far from proving that the gospel isn't true or that the gospel has failed 
the state of the world tonight proves the truth of the gospel in a way that nothing else does. Here has been this testimony now for nearly 2,000 years, pitting itself against these optimists, these politicians, and all the rest of them, who are always telling us about a wonderful future that's about to come. No, says the gospel, it's not going to come. It never will come. The world will go on like this, and at the end it will be even worse. My dear friend, can't you see that the state of the world at this moment, far from disproving the gospel, is an absolute proof of the truth of the gospel? What the gospel said would be, actually is. I know of nothing that is such a proof of the divine inspiration of this book as the way in which the modern world at this very minute is proving the truth of its case. The argument of this modern man who won't listen to the gospel is completely false. He's got it precisely the wrong way round. The world as it is proves the gospel to be God's word. It's true. The world is verifying the prediction and the prophecy of the Son of God. But, you see, it doesn't stop even there. I go on now to my third proposition, which is this. The gospel doesn't stop at a mere bare statement that this is going to be the state of the world and that this is the future. It supplies us with the explanation as to why this is the case and always will be. Now, this is to me something most profound. I'm almost tempted to put it like this. That perhaps there is no better test as to whether you're a Christian or not than simply this. Are you dumbfounded because of what is happening in the world? Are you surprised that the world is as it is tonight? Is it to you a matter of astonishment and amazement? Do you feel that your whole position is shaking? Are you beginning to say, well now, my theories all seem to have been wrong. Are you astounded? Well, you know, if you are, well, to say the least, you're a very poor and a very badly instructed Christian. For the gospel not only tells us that it is going to be like this, it tells us exactly why it's going to be like this. And it's all in these verses that we're looking at this evening. Here is the explanation. Why is the world like this? Well, the world is like this because of the heart of men. Because of the evil that is in the heart of men. This deceit that he talks about. This lust which he mentions. All the greed which he indicates in what he says here. Now, our Lord says that that is the cause of the trouble. That there is evil in the very heart of men. James, you remember, puts it in, in respect to the one particular matter of war in this way. He says, whence come wars among you? Read the fourth chapter of James's epistle. Whence come wars among you? He answers the question. 
He says they come even of your lusts that are within you. Ye desire and ye have not. And because you're all doing the same, you fight one another. It's lust. The cause of war is lust in the human heart. And there's no other explanation of it. In other words, our Lord's way of putting it is this. That the world is as it is because of its final hatred of God. Because of its hatred of God's laws. The world is as it is because men rebelled against God and refused to continue living according to God's most holy laws. You see, as long as he did that, his world was paradise. He didn't have to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. He simply picked the fruit of the garden. But all men wasn't content with that. He wanted to be as a god. He believed he could manage his own world in a better way than God could do. So he rebelled against God. He ate of the forbidden fruit. And he brought chaos upon himself. And he's been in it ever since. And he will be to the end. Why? Well, because he's trying to run his world. And because of this rebellion, his nature has fallen. And he's controlled by lust and desire. Rather than by truth and justice and righteousness and the will and the way of a holy God. Did you notice how our Lord puts it? He says, they not only, he says, uh, hate me, and they not only will hate you and kill you and put to death, he says they will even hate one another. Now that's a surprising thing, isn't it? You'd have thought that at any rate they'd have had the sense to all combine together against God. If God is the enemy, well, let's all combine, let's have a mammoth trade union against God. And then all will be well. But they don't do that. They hate one another. They're fighting within the trade union. Why? Oh, you see, for this reason. The moment man doesn't bow before God, he becomes a god himself. Yes, but the other man is a god also. And it's a fight between the gods. I want to have everything, but the other man wants to have everything. Well, there's nothing to do but to fight for it. That's the cause of the state of the world, my dear friend. That's the cause of the whole unhappiness of men and women this evening. Why, I ask again, is there all this infidelity and all this separation, all this divorce, the tearing of families, the neglect of little children, the wounding of their little minds, and all the consequences that follow, and all the unhappiness, whence comes it? Even amongst educated people, amongst philosophers, amongst scientists, whence comes it? There's only one answer. It comes from the lust that is within them. The problem, you see, is deeper than education. It's deeper than the level of a man's mind. There are in every one of us, by nature, that comes into this world, these lusts, these passions, these drives, these forces that are stronger than our minds and that make me do something that I know to be wrong. I know I'll regret it afterwards. I still do it. I want it. It moves me. It grips me. I'm a helpless victim in its hands. That's why the world is as it is. It's evil. It's lust in the heart, down in the very depths of man's personality.
And you can pass all the acts of Parliament that the imagination and the ingenuity of men can ever think of or conceive of. <laughs> and they won't touch your lust. Would to God you could get rid of lust by acts of Parliament. Wouldn't we all thank God for it? If by acts of Parliament you could get rid of your temper, wouldn't you be pleased? But you know that an act of Parliament leaves you exactly where you were. And so with all the lusts and all the things that make life a shambles. You can't reform these things out of existence. You can't legislate these things and cause them to disappear. No, no. Moral suasion, poetry, beauty, art, music, bring them all to play. They'll have a temporary effect, but they won't get rid of your lust. It remains. It's the profoundest thing in man in his fallen state. That's why the world is as it is. And it can listen to all your appeals and all your knowledge. It knows it all. But it isn't governed by it. And another aspect of this matter that I would like to emphasize is this. Every man, every person that is born into this world is born like that. Every one of us. Every one of us was born like that. Every one of our children has been born like that and will be born like that. You know, this is a remarkable thing and people with all their knowledge don't seem to be able to see it. There is no such thing as the inheritance of acquired characteristics. And the whole of this false notion which we are considering is based upon that. You see, it works like this. Educate this present generation with your gospel. And then, of course, the next generation that follows this must start where we left off. Then you'll give them a bit more and they'll be higher. Then the next one will start with the inheritance of acquired characteristics. That's the basis of this other theory. So that when we are born into this world, we are born, as it were, on the shoulders of our fathers our, and fathers and mothers. We start not where they started, we start on their shoulders. And on and on it goes. The inheritance of acquired characteristics. But there's never been such rubbish, such nonsense. Alas, unfortunately, that isn't true. But we are all born into this world sinners, exactly as our parents were. We are no better than our parents, not at all. Don't you often see this in history? It's very striking. You see it in the Bible. You'll have a most saintly king in the Old Testament. A marvelous man. A friend of God. And then you begin to read the history of his son, who was a blackguard, a scamp, a fool, who turned away from his father's way and rebelled against God. No, no, you don't inherit these acquired characteristics. And though you may teach one generation, it tells you nothing about the next. The history even of the church is these alternations of up and down and good and bad. No, no, every one of us is born in sin and shapen in iniquity. The gospel of Jesus Christ, far from saying that it's a social and moral improvement program, says this. You, every one of you, whenever you live, whenever you're born, you must be born again. Why? Well, because by your first birth you're born in sin. You're born a creature of lust and of passion. 
Every generation needs the gospel. You can't rest on your oars. The gospel is needed in every generation as much as in every other generation. You don't go on and build on on what has happened. We all start at the bottom. We all must be born again. Isn't it amazing that anybody can conceivably misunderstand this? Here is a gospel, the very center of which is this message about the rebirth and about regeneration and about being created anew for all generations. And yet, they think that it's a program for moral and social and political amelioration and improvement. My dear friend, the gospel is the exact opposite of that. This is the message which tells us that the world is as it is because of man's evil heart and that nothing will suffice for him but a new heart to be born again, to be given the gift of life by God after God has forgiven him for his sin. That's the message. The Son of God didn't come into the world to improve the world. He said himself, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came and he died on Calvary. What for? To rescue us and redeem us out of this present evil world before it is hurtled to the final disaster, to the ultimate destruction. And therefore, for me to close this evening, we must go on with this chapter. But to close this evening, I say therefore to you, my friend, that the problem for you is not the problem of the state of the world. It is the problem of the state of your own heart. You forget the world for a moment. Because the world, you know, is nothing but you multiplied by millions. That's what the world is. What fools we are. We say, isn't the world awful? What is the world? It's you, it's me, multiplied by millions. So the question for us is not to be looking at the state of the world and making our big statements. Let us examine ourselves and let me ask a few questions. What is your attitude towards God? It is, I say, the false attitude to God on behalf of the whole, on the part of the whole world that makes the world what it is. Very well, what is your attitude towards God? Are you living a life like Adam did in paradise before he fell? Waiting for God's will, rejoicing to do it, glorying in it. Is that your life? What is your view of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why did he come into this world? Why did he die on that cross on Calvary's hill? Have you realized that he did that and had to do it? Because you and I were so guilty before God in his holiness that nothing but that could save us? That he took our punishment upon himself, stood in our place, was made a curse for us that we might be forgiven and redeemed. Do you realize that he came to give you a new heart, a new nature, a new life, a new beginning, because nothing else would suffice you? 
Do you realize that he did all this? Because we simply cannot be improved. Of course. We can change our clothing. But that isn't to improve a man. To give a man a new suit doesn't make him a new man. To put him in a palace rather than a pigsty doesn't make him a new man. It's the heart of men that matters. It is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, and all the things that make life what it is this evening. And man needs, and nothing will suffice him but a new heart, a clean heart, a new nature, the nature of God. And he came in order to give us that. Do you believe that? Have you seen that truth concerning him? Have you seen that that's his message? That's his reason for coming. Listen, I pray you, I beseech you. As I value your immortal soul and as I tremble to think of your eternal destiny if you don't listen to him. Listen to this one, this son of God. This accurate prophet, this one who sees the whole of history and is the Lord of history, listen to him. As he calls to you this evening, in this modern, troubled, anxious, bewildered world, listen to him as he says to you, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Forget the world, don't trust to that. The future of the world is plain. What of you? Are you to be involved in its final destruction? You needn't be. Listen to him. He calls you to repent. To acknowledge your sin, your folly, your unbelief. Cast yourself upon him and his love. Repent, he says. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll not only be saved from that coming destruction... You will have this new nature, this new life. You will have an understanding of the world as it is and as it's going to be. And you'll no longer be afraid because you will know that you belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and that you'll be in it through all eternity. Listen to him. Amen.